0: Moncrief on News Talk. Now, as we all know, Ireland has a long history of emigration. As we also know, the Irish weren't always welcomed with open arms into host countries. As often as not, they were treated with suspicion and outright hostility. Go back a century, even less, and the unvetted males were Irish. Ariel Glynn is a migration historian at UCD. Ariel, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Sean. Uh so the, like for, for if you like the history of hostility towards uh, Irish immigrants, when would that have started? Would that be are we looking at the kind of uh, post famine uh, time?
1: Yeah, around the around the famine, uh 1840s, 1850s in the United States, but also at different junctures in Britain. Uh you you have it coming out quite strongly, so even before the famine in Manchester and places like that, there would be some hostility towards what were called Little Ireland's, so kind of areas associated associated with the Irish. But really it took off then in the United States where most migrants left for in the 1840s and 1850s during and after the famine. Mm. And that's where it really began to, to ramp up and became uh, quite organized. You know, whereas in Britain it was less organized, it was more like just people, you know... Um, you know, showing their hostility in, in different ways. In, in the United States, there, were, there was a political movement against the, kind of the Irish and uh, other Catholic immigrants, but particularly focusing on the Irish because of their religion, their numbers, and, you know, the, the fact that, well, the, the perception that they were going to threaten this white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant American identity.
0: Right. OK. And so then a lot of the objection, would certainly in the, in the American example of this, would it have been on religious grounds?
1: Yeah. You, you know, it, it's a combination of a lot of things. But that was the main thing, you know, that these uh, papists were going to challenge the identity and maybe bring, uh, allow uh, the Vatican and the Pope to have a say on American affairs. Whereas they wanted to govern themselves, they wanted you know, they were very much um insistent that this was a, a a Protestant nation where and the the influx of uh Germans to a certain extent so Germans were Protestant and Catholic, but the, the Irish had been, you know, in the early nineteenth century a lot of Presbyterians, dissenters, Protestant emigrants, so you know, the Scotch Irish or Scots Irish that we mm. refer to today. But then, from just before the famine, Catholics seemed to started to outnumber those of other faiths, and then it it you know uh, during the famine it exploded in yeah. terms of numbers. So so this is when and and also you know the, the Irish had voting rights very quickly uh, there. So there was this perception or this fear that they would uh, you know have undue in influence and this you know Rome and the Catholic Church would be able to um use this to their uh yeah to, to their advantage mm.
0: yeah. within that then was that was that essentially an argument about what kind of country America was in the, and that you had a, a population already there saying no this is a this is a protestant country rather than a, a diverse country
1: yeah very much and you, you know it like so The the economic argument is there constantly, but really the cultural argument is is much stronger. So, um, and you know, the same was true for... So so what happens in in the United States, for instance, is basically the rhetoric continues to this day, as we know, but just the, the group in question changes. So it's the Irish in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, then it switches to the Chinese, in the 1870s, then later it becomes the the Italians and the Jews, um, you know, and, and more recently it's, it's the Mexicans and mm. Muslims and, and other people, but it's generally the same kind of language, you know, these people won't assimilate, they're different to us, Their their customs are too alien for ours, they will change our character in a way we don't want it to be changed, so this was the the fear, and this was the rhetoric usually used. So, it you know, you had the development of this so-called no-nothings, no-nothing party in the United States. You know, their presidential candidate got around uh, over 20% of the vote in the 1850s. So, you know, a significant uh, movement, um, but with the kind of the Civil War in the 1860s, this kind of
0: disappeared. Yeah. So I suppose what's interesting about that is that, as you say, the, 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 uh, the rhetoric remains largely similar through generations, though who it's aimed at changes. But when every time when they say they are different to us, us has actually changed because with each generation there's been a new uh, wave of immigrants.
1: Yeah, but generally it's easier to say what you're not than what you are. So, you know, they prefer not defining exactly what it means to be American, per se, se, but then they can say, well, these Irish Catholics, they are definitely not American, or whoever uh, the group in in question is. And, you know, but but that's why it shifts, you know, um, I I mentioned the Chinese, for instance, or or Italians and Jews later on, by then, the Irish had become assimilated, you know, and Mm. The United States have changed as a result, so you do see the the influence of the Irish in the Democratic Party, for instance, and in the uh, unions and the you know police departments in in New York, for instance. So it it does change over time, um, but you know you have the second generation, so they're they're uh, rising up the social ladder, you know, like the Kennedys, for instance. Um, that they, every generation, they're, they're probably becoming more successful, they're becoming school teachers, they're becoming respectable kind of members of the community, and then the fears about them uh, reduce, you know, that they're, oh, well, actually, we thought they, they were... They couldn't come in, and they'd change uh, the United States for the worse. But actually, they're not so bad. But these new people coming in—they're—they're they're the ones we really have to protect against.
0: Mm. So, and I mean, and as probably, uh, does that also have the effect that if you're second on the rung, as the Irish quickly became, then you're probably more vehement in uh, uh, your distaste for the new arrivals.
1: Uh, it, it depends. So, well, wh- what happens is. Uh, with the Irish, you know, they they were living alongside uh, African-Americans in, you know, Northeastern cities in the United States. And they were, there was some intermarriage. They were, they were living alongside each other. They were working alongside each other, but then they, the Irish realized the importance of their color. So they started to embrace their whiteness because this gave them voting rights. It gave them certain employment rights. Um, and so this enabled them to kind of um, rise up the, the the social hierarchy. They didn't feel as threatened by, let's say, the Jewish and Italians coming in later on because they had already established themselves. And, and, and Jews and Italians looked to the Irish and to the Germans in the United States to actually help them um, stave off some of the restrictions that um, the different groups tried to... Start to bring in in the late 19th and early 20th century. You know they they started to try and because back then there were there were no passports, mm. so you didn't have to. There was no immigration restrictions as we know them unless you were from uh, China. Are somewhere like that. So there, then there are specific restrictions came in place for those people. But if you were coming from Western Europe or Europe, there weren't then you didn't have to show anything. You just had to have a certain amount of money, pass a medical test. But then in, there were increasing calls to restrict this. And, uh, you know, around the early 1900s, there was uh, something called the Immigration Restriction League started, you know, uh, lobbying politicians for this. And, you know, it was interesting to, to see who was lobbying back. So, so they, they sometimes get the Irish to help them, you know, because they're established, they're immigrants. Um, but sometimes other immigrant groups, <clears throat> um, you know, help those who come after them, but sometimes they shut the door as mm-hmm. well or, or pull up the, the, the drawbridge. It depends.
0: Yeah. So, so do, do, do these kind of, uh, you have waves of immigration and then you, in, in response to that, a, a kind of burst of nativism, it, 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 is that an endlessly repeating loop as far as you can see? Uh,
1: not, not endless, but it, it depends on where, but in the United States it seems to be. Um, but it, it's not, you know, Canada, even though it's had uh, immigration consistently, um, it, doesn't ha- it hasn't had the same history, particularly since the 1960s. Um, Australia... Since the 1970s, you could say that there are certain, there have been certain politicians who've, who've tried to play the native with cards in Australia, but they have a very organized migration kind of policy and plan in, involving point system and all these things. But, you know, generally they're uh, quite isolated. You know, it's, it's, they, they, it's easier for them to control than mm. it might be for a European country that's part of the uh, European Union, for instance, or is, is joined to lots of other countries. You know, Ireland has the advantage of um, being an island, so that, and, and Britain does, so that's made it actually much harder to get to Britain and Ireland than it has uh, much of continental Europe.
0: Yeah, but say, the, 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 is there a difference between the way Canada has approached immigration and the way the United States approached immigration? What was that difference?
1: Well, they they welcomed it. They specifically, uh, you know, th- they said, we need people, uh, we want people, and this is going to be, uh, we, we're, but we're going to have to plan this very well, and we're going to specify who it is we want, you know, in ter- not in terms of nationality per se, but in terms of skills and background. So that's what they've put forward, and they have a very you know, welcoming attitude from the top down, let's say, and and a very organised attitude. So, you know, the United States at at times have had that as well, but they go, they appear to go through these nativist um, kind of periods more regularly than the Canadians do.
0: Mm. Do you know? Do you know why that is?
1: Well, maybe because of uh, their location. So, uh, as in more recently, because they're. You know, they're they're joined with, with Mexico and, and Latin America. Now, most, you know, we hear from Trump and others some criticism of Mexicans, but really Mexicans aren't coming into America really anymore as much. It's it's more people from Central America. Um, also, maybe the United States has this draw, has always had this draw as a country of immigration. Canada too, but it's harder to get there from uh, different places and you, you mightn't have the same communities there. So, what's called chain migration, if you have a group from a certain background, uh, even if you you put in regulations to try and stop those other people from from those backgrounds coming if they have contacts and networks and you know family members and friends there, it makes it harder to stop this you know you, you can have things like family reunion. And uh, maybe they they can be sponsored by family family members. There are there are ways to get uh, kind of circumvent some of these restrictions.
0: Yeah, Ariel, thank you very much for uh, speaking with us today. Ariel Glenn is a migration historian at UCD. Moncrief weekdays at two p.m. on News Talk.